0: We figure you know each other's ins and outs pretty well, so it's an old newlywed game where (laughs) you ask one person a question, the other one answers. We're going to try that with you both. How much
1: time do you spend on defining shot selection?
2: Go ahead, Brooke. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take it, Sue.
1: Good synergy here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, Strategies and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head and associate head coach tandem for Florida State women's basketball, Sue Simrau and Brooke Wyckoff. The coaching duo is here today to discuss high pressure communication, consistent messaging, teaching closeouts, and we talk horns action, post play, and bad screening during a special version of Start, Sub, or Sit. For coaches looking to both support the podcast as well as connect and learn from coaches around the world, becoming a member of SG Plus does both. Check out slappingglass.com for yearly, monthly, and staff rates to get access to thousands of hours of curated and topical x and leadership content. Thanks for the support, and we hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with coaches Sue Simran and Brooke Wyckoff. Coaches, thank you very much for making the time for us this morning. We're really excited to talk to you.
2: Definitely.
3: Our pleasure. Thank you for having us.
0: So this will be fun. This is our first podcast where we have two coaches from the same staff at the same time. And so we're really looking forward to getting two different points of view throughout the podcast on coaching and teaching and X's and O's and all that. And so to start, wanted to dive in with this concept of critical communication or communication, but under pressure circumstances. And uh, Sue, maybe we'll start with you first as the head coach and how you sort of see your role in high pressure situations and communication we'll start first with communication from the staff to players
2: you know it's, it's interesting that you said the first time that you had two people from the same staff and the word that really came to me was duet it's really got to be that type of communication where they complement one another you know you're in one city and pat's in another and and brooks in one city and i'm in another and just think of how amazing it is that we can all communicate right now i think it all starts with the ability that we have as individuals to communicate and communication isn't telling communication is teaching and getting someone to listen and so It's important that you know your audience and it's important that the person that is complimenting you knows you and your audience. It really takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time coming together to know one another. And I think that's the thing for Brooke and I, if you think about it, I mean, I've known Brooke since she was a 17-year-old basketball player. And so we've had a lot of time to develop that type of communication, but we're very different and the way we communicate, which is so complimentary and so fun. So when you look at, I think it's critical to communicate early. And when you think about a staff, if a staff understands their role, if a staff understands what your vision is, what is coming next, then it's much easier to communicate in a moment of pressure. And so we work very hard to communicate early and often and to communicate not just as a big group, but as a staff, um, as individuals. And that's what it takes. Communication takes time, it takes effort, and it takes energy. And I think it's one of the most important things in leadership and in basketball that there is.
0: Brooke, I'd love to throw it to you. Sue was just talking about how you communicate differently. The differences in your communication styles, how do you use that as an advantage as a staff.
3: It is interesting. We are so different. The thing that is a common thread though, and this is goes to what Sue was just talking about, is that we're talking about the same things. We have the same basic philosophy. We have the same value system of our program. And so it is nice to have those different communication styles because as we know, like a different voice, a different way of saying something sometimes gets through better than others. So to have those different ways of speaking, and we have it with the other two assistants on our staff, we all have specific personality and a way of communicating with our players that... We're all saying the same thing, but it may get through in a different way or more effectively. And so as an assistant, and it was interesting being a head coach last year, interim head coach, and how I was received and my communication style changed a little bit as a head coach. As an assistant, I know and I realize now that my words don't carry the weight that Sue's words do with the players. And that's okay. That's how it should be. Also, I'm not the end all be all the person that everyone's looking to. So in a sense, it gives me a little bit more freedom to maybe be harder on the players at times, they can receive me being harder on them as an assistant than the head coach. Not that Sue's not hard on them, but as a head coach, you have to really weigh how your words are coming across because that player is saying, wow, the head coach, the person who's deciding my playing time, the person that you know is ultimately responsible for how this thing goes to me is speaking to me this way. It's really nice to see that different dynamic, to understand that. And for my future as coaching and a head coach, maybe again, someday to know that. And just knowing Sue so well, I think we do a good job of playing off of each other hard and soft. (laughs) She's usually usually the nicer one, um, the more understanding one, the more patient one. And I've learned so much from her and I have a lot to learn in that area from her as well still.
2: I think an example, when you talk about staffs and communication with the staff, we have an individual in our program who's been with us for a very long time and is now looking to move into a different level of his profession. And so Brooke and I went to meet with him and Brooke was just like, this is what we need to be looking at. We love you, but your standard is different and you need to do this. And and I was like, okay, Brooke, let's go. You know, it's just, it's cool to be able to bounce those two things off one another.
1: So on that note, I mean, it's really interesting. I guess there's always this notion of like this good cop, bad cop, and do you choose how you want to speak to them based off how your assistants are, or do you set the tone and then your assistants kind of fill in the cracks?
2: I never look at it that way. I never make that choice. If you go through a McDonald's drive through and you've ordered a Big Mac and fries and a Coke and you get to the drive through window and they're like, Hey, you know, great to see you today. We're so excited. You came to McDonald's and here's the price. And, and they give you your bag and you drive away and you're like, man, that was great. But you leave and you've got a fish sandwich, no fries and an orange drink. You've got to make sure that you're competent in who you are. I can't choose who I am every day. I'm going to be who I am. And whoever that is, I've got a coach to that. And so same thing with my assistants, they've got a coach to who they are. It's not like I'm saying, Hey, you need to go behind and be harder on this. No, it's all about teaching the individual. It's to me, it's not about how hard or soft you are, it's how much you teach. And for me, I always believe that there's a why behind the what. I always believe that either the kid is lazy and doesn't want to do it. And then you've got to be a little tough in a different area or the kid doesn't understand. Or you're doing a poor job of teaching. And so we're constantly adjusting. It isn't about good cop, bad cop. Uh, You know, I think Mm -hmm. we all just are who we are in our personalities.
0: Brooke, with you taking over for a year last year, you know, stepping into the head role and now coming back into the role you're in now, what did you learn about how much information you would like communicated to you, let's say during a timeout or during tough situations so that now back in your role, you're able to filter maybe better or more efficiently to what sue would want
3: i learned so much i think i texted her like the first week that i was actually on the job like i'm so sorry for a horrible (laughs) assistant that i was and thank you for your patience (laughs)
1: forgiveness.
3: Thank you. And uh, you know, so it it is, I learned so much. And my goal this year is to be a better assistant for her understanding what it's like to be in her shoes. And that is one thing that you have everybody looking to you to see what you want. And then you got to decide what do I need? What is most important for me? Sue is always someone that says she wants information, whether that be what we're doing recruiting wise, like what we did that day recruiting, just let her know, you know, in timeouts. She's got a very specific way that has evolved at times, but just a very specific way of how she wants communication given to her during timeouts. As a first time head coach, I was more like in the mode of, I needed to be able to learn to trust my gut a lot and information overload. It was sometimes just like, if I had a question, I'd go to that assistant or I'd want this specific thing, but I didn't want it coming to me all the time necessarily. And that was just because I needed to be confident in that. (laughs) I need to trust and I just (laughs) need to go and do this thing. Whereas Sue has the experience of you know knowing who she is and that confidence and just taking that information, she's able to filter it like no other in a timeout. We're all giving her stuff. And then she goes into that timeout with the kids and is like, boom, boom, boom. Whereas I had to be thinking, okay, this is what I want to say. And maybe let me get one thing from an assistant before we go into that huddle.
1: Quickly piggyback off of Brooke's point. Sue, what is the way you like the communication or what is your process in the timeout of how you like to receive information from your assistants?
2: Brooke said it well, when we had a scouting meeting, she said, it always looks the same. Oh, we got to rebound. We got to keep them out of the paint. And we got to stop them in transition. I mean, you just pick all that. But it's been this huge puzzle that you've taken all the pieces, you put them together, and then you've said, we're going to focus on this particular piece. So the information that I want is going to be focused on that key that we've studied so hard to try to figure out if we do this we've got a great chance to win this game. And so it's centered around that, but I don't want anybody to guess. I want it to be concise. I want it to be factual. I want it to be data-driven. And then, like Brooke said, then I trust my gut and we got to go from there.
0: Another area I think interesting on a staff is when you're trying to, especially right now, kind of pre-season or early season, is helping players understand and defining roles and how the communication from the top to the bottom of a staff, everybody's on the same page. Um, Maybe Sue, we'll, we'll start back with you on this one. How do you make sure that the player roles that you foresee for a player gets communicated all the way down the staff in the same way?
2: Yeah, that's extremely important. Since Brooke was a player, we've established to the detail, this is how many shots that we want you looking for a game. This is how many deflections that we think you should be able to get a game. This is how you make us better. Now that role can change, but right now this is what you've earned. And so we discuss that as a staff. So everyone is on the same page. And then it's a brutal truth when it comes down to communicating that to the players. You know, when I came back in the spring and we had the summer workouts at the end of summer, I put together a depth chart and it's not easy. For people to see this is where I see you right now. I never want to say you're not going to do this. You know, that you gotta have, you've got to believe in every player that they can overcome whatever it is and move up that depth chart. They can change their role by shooting the ball better. And I think that's where the staff comes in to help them to understand the value of whatever their role is. It's my job to make sure that they know that. The reason I said you can only shoot the ball four times is you're shooting at 25%. That's not best for our team. What's best right. for our team, though, is that you go in and you lock down you know, the toughest player on the team. And if you do that, then you've got this opportunity. And so the staff knowing that and making sure that we put value on those other things is important.
0: Brooke, how do you then continue to pass that information along from your role?
3: as assistants we have position groups and this year i work with the post players so it's understanding what each of my post players have been assigned and helping hold them accountable to that but also developing them and taking those hard numbers of what they need to improve on working with them on it but also just counseling them you know a lot of this job as we all know as coaches is counseling and the <laughs> mental aspect and psychological aspect of you know the journey of a player and so Helping them understand, accept that role in a one-on-one conversation and working within that and developing them, I think is our responsibility positionally.
1: Brooke, as coaches, we all know every player wants more minutes. And when you define these roles, and even when the player does the role, but sometimes there's just a player ahead of them that's better and the minutes just aren't going to be there. From an assistant standpoint, what were those conversations like where they are doing everything you ask, but... Just, you know, because you're in those staff meetings that the minutes aren't going to come.
3: Those are the moments where the relationship that you've built with these players off the court come so in handy. We're very fortunate as a staff, as a program that Sue is a player's coach. And a lot of those conversations, those hard conversations that she's having with the group. And like she said, the depth chart conversations, she does those and is able to have those because she's put in the work with these players too, of just learning who they are as people, allowing them to trust her finding out you know, what's important to them and building a relationship with them. And we follow suit as assistants. And that's all it is, is that educating them from the moment they step on campus, this is not going to be easy. It's going to be worth it if you really want it. It's worth it in the end, trying to get them to believe that. And then building a relationship outside of basketball so that when those hard times come when they're just distraught or ready to transfer or, you know, I just don't understand. I've had so many players say to me, you know, I don't feel like I can play basketball anymore. Like they lose all confidence just because they're not playing and over and over drying those tears, (laughs) closed door meetings because you've built the relationship. If you don't have it, then they're not going to come to you and they're listening to everybody else who's probably telling them to transfer. And so, you know, so that's the battle that we fight uh, a lot. But I think
2: it's so interesting and so important to note that we have longevity at Florida State. And so they've been able to see those players that become the core of our program have put in that time. So, you know, we had Nikki, Kamu, Kaya Gillespie, Naja Wolf, three seniors who really never saw the light of day their freshman year, maybe, you know, five, 10 minutes. And now everything's on their shoulders. Whereas, and I tell them a lot of time, you can come here where it's going to be. You're going to have to learn and make your mistakes not in front of everyone. Or you can be like Brooke. When I first took the job and we were terrible and Brooke, as a freshman, had to play 40 minutes a game. She had to make her mistakes in front of the world. Both are okay. But you ask Brooke and she says, I think I would have chosen the other way around, you know? And uh, so hopefully they get that
1: message. I guess the other difficult conversation I'm thinking of too is maybe when you have your second, third year returner and they see that. The senior or the person above them is leaving, but then you recruit over them or you bring in yeah, a star freshman. How is that conversation then when you go and define the death chart and they see they have gained no ground?
2: Well, right now we're really fortunate that that really doesn't happen a lot because I believe that experience is huge. So, you know, we've got a two-time Gatorade player of the year in the state of Florida that's coming in as a freshman and she's really good. She has no idea what I want yet <laughs> and she'll have great opportunities to wow the crowd, but she's not ready for the keys yet. And I look at our freshmen, how talented, and it gets me so excited. But boy, that experience is huge.
0: Coach, and this is for both you, over the years, being able to coach and handle a situation where for basketball, if there's a 15 person roster and there's only five on the floor, there's like, there's about over half of your players that are probably unhappy at any given time about their playing time. And how do you balance still keeping them fresh, looking you know forward to being a good teammate, knowing that you're not giving most of them probably what they want on a daily basis, playing time wise.
2: It's so interesting, especially with COVID, you know, and injuries. And, you know, we were at 16. Prior to the fault. And I had to have that hard conversation with 16 players saying, I love y'all. I brought you all here and through no fault of your own, whether it be an injury or COVID, we're in a situation where my rotation is about eight. And so some of you aren't going to be happy with your playing time. I know that. I get that. And I will help you to go anywhere you want to go. For me, it was really important. I meant that. And mm-hmm. I had two players who had graduated from Florida State who said, we've had our time here and we've appreciated it. So we'll go do our grad work somewhere else. We've got two years. Both of them had had injuries, but nobody else left. So I have 14. And that's hard. That's really <laughs> But that means that my staff is doing such a fantastic job of developing them as people and students. And Florida State such a great place to go to school that it makes me proud. And so now I've got to work my tail off to make sure that they're in a position to meet goals that they want to in other ways, possibly, you know, different internships. Now with the opportunities with the NIL, all of those things, I want them to know how much I care about them as people. And then we are going to continue to keep developing. You I have one player who is a fourth year sophomore because of her injuries and COVID. (laughs) So (laughs) I believe that, you know, she's going to make a difference for our program one day.
0: Transitioning now into more of a tactical conversation, and something that you know Pat and I have talked about off air quite a bit, and uh, Brooke, you and I talked a little bit about last week is closeouts and just kind of anything and everything about closeouts. And so, Brooke, maybe we'll start with you kind of adding on for what we talked about off-air, of just how you're thinking about teaching closeouts from like, a top-down perspective.
3: Well, yeah, Dan, when we talked, I said, yes, the million-dollar question. I think this <laughs> is the million-dollar question. I know it is for our staff. It is Sue's million-dollar question. We ask it every single year. <laughs> how are yeah. we going to teach a closeout? I bet Sue has had about a 100 conversations on the road with different coaches. How do you teach clothes out? You know, we're at, in July, watching <laughs> So, how do you teach a clothes out? I've had so many people ask me, just again on the road, like, how do you guys teach clothes out? I think because it's like one of the hardest things to do is close out and keep someone in front, you know, just the very nature of, you know, physics, like just, (laughs) so everyone wants that secret sauce answer of how to do it. And we love the topic because we love defense and we have a specific thing that we want to achieve, which is keep the ball out of the middle. But how that happens based on personnel to understanding who our team is from year to year, what their capabilities are, you know, physically, athletically has changed, you know, always changes the conversation a little bit as well. So that's where we start, though, is that our defense and our help rotations are designed to keep it out of the middle. But we also really value keeping people in front. We hate blow bys. We've struggled. I think everybody does with them. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where the conversation always starts. It just evolves from year to year a little bit on how we teach it.
1: When are you breaking down your feet? Is it overrated? That stutter step? <laughs> what is the footwork, I guess, leading up to them actually sliding or stopping the ball and keeping the ball in front?
3: Oh, that's such a good question. And it starts with us, our angle. We play gap defense off the ball. So one pass away, we're in gaps. And and actually this year we started to adjust where our gaps are to A, keep the ball out of the middle better, like be better helpers, keeping it out of the paint. And also to be able to have the angle of a closeout that's not going to get us beat. Because what we've done, it's, it's specifically just for at the top of the key when you're in a gap you're staying a little bit deeper. We used to do shallow triangle a lot. Just wherever you are on the floor, you're in a shallow triangle. But that closeout angle a lot of times, especially when the ball's coming below the free throw line up, is tough to close out. You know, you're at a shallow angle. So keeping someone at the elbow when that ball comes back up to the slot area gives them a better closeout angle. So it starts from there, like where you're closing out from, obviously like if you're at midline and that's that long closeout that (laughs) that one too is just talking about that one. I don't like the stutter. And I just told one of our players this yesterday. It's like, go just take away the three, you know, like go take away the three point line. We do work on that stutter step to get there, but a lot of times you're giving up an open three that way anyway, and you're still just as likely to get beat. I mean, honestly, like you're just as likely to get blown by. So why not just make sure they're not driving middle when you do get blown by, take away that three and then bust your butt to get back and try to recover. Our help is built in on that baseline side, there's going to be help. So, you know, we talk about, like I said, just angles of the gaps and then take away that three-point shot. Don't play it safe. And then we drill trying to stay in front after
1: that. My question is for Sue and Brooke had mentioned the help side. And I always wonder what the closeouts, obviously we have to teach them. We have to do them, but is it more important that we're good in the help and in the rotations because the closeouts are so hard to really master and do, especially if like you said, you don't have the physical attributes to do it well, but if we can master the help and getting people in position.
2: Yeah, 100% Pat. I mean, it's, I always say too, and that's why we feel like we can have them go hard to take away the three is because your help is built in. Is it ideal? No, but if you're good at it, it really does help. I mean, obviously it puts that mismatch usually with the guard on a post for that little point in time, if a post comes over to help and a guard comes down. But I do think that that's critical. If you can get really good at flying around, then you can be a good defensive team, especially the way that the officials are calling the game down. now. You know, if you could put your hands on somebody for a second, slow them down. But like Brooke said, it's physics. One's going back, one's going got no. their back to the basket, one's going straight ahead. So that's the rules. And let's try to play accordingly.
0: One thing that's just like an interesting thing that Pat and I've talked about is more and more teams are the concept of like peel switching, where instead of someone getting beat and you try to recover back to your own man, you're just as soon as you get beat, you're peeling off back behind. And so the rotations are over. <laughs> is that anywhere on your minds as far as talking about defending closeouts?
3: A lot of things like when we're talking about either switching or like this year, we're starting to really work and drill going through a ball screen that going under the screen, which was something that is very new to us. It's been very anti what we do for a long time, but is, I think, necessary in this day and age. Anyway, there's always that fear, like, are we letting the players off the hook? Are they going to play less aggressively if they know they can switch? If they know we're going through a ball screen, like you have that fear that, You want to be an aggressive defensive team. You don't want to just get by. And it's the same thing with zone. Like if we just let our players play zone, are they going to, like Sue said, rest? (laughs) And so something like the switching or, you know, whatever it may be, it's like, dang, are they going to still want to like, you know, really get after it in this? It's always a question we
1: ask. And Brooke, going off of that, on the under, how do you build an aggression then? So it's not a lazy defense. You're going under with a purpose.
3: Yeah, I think it's because we're explaining it that we're trying to play two on two. So guard that's got to get under, you got to work to A, make the ball handler use the screen, make sure that they're not going to refuse the screen and then be there when they come off the screen, like be in front. We don't want our post player to have to help and plug a long time there at all and allow that ball handler to get downhill. So it is work. I mean, we're asking them, be up, pressuring the ball. Now, when you hear a screen, get off, make sure they don't use yeah. the screen, <laughs> get through and be ready to guard again. Yeah. Like my hesitation of like, oh, it, it feels like just like kind of a cop out defense <laughs> or whatever. As we started to teach it more, they're seeing it's not easy and they're on an island and they've got to, you know, make sure that, okay, I've got through the screen. I still have to, this guard may be reattacking yeah. already or coming off the rescreen. I got to be on.
2: When great shoot the corners, I mean, and you're working between the lane lines, I mean, with a ball screen. Wow, that's hard. You know, like we've been a really good hard hedge team, but wow, that's hard to do right there because that's a long way for a kid to come and bump a roller. And you leave a good shooter like that. So we've got to have alternatives because we play in a great league.
1: With the under, is the big jamming the screen or is he dropped off? Dropped off. Yeah. Dropped off
3: and ready to get back to her, you know, the roller pretty quick. You know, she's obviously that second line of defense, but we want her to be the second line of defense because that guard's gotten through, not have the guard rely on the posts. You know, yeah, we just trying to yeah. avoid fouls and things like that. I mean, we're just not, <laughs> we want to keep our out of foul trouble. Yeah. And jamming is so hard. What do you guys think about jamming?
1: Yeah, I think it's tough. I think usually you'll end up in a Double screen. It makes sense if it's probably a pick and pop guy, Yeah, someone who you don't want to give space on.
0: Or how high it is, yeah. too. If it's a high drag screen, it's a little easier yeah. to get the guard under than closer to the rim. Like Pat said, yeah. it kind of creates like a triple screen.
2: Yeah, we agree with too, and it's but and that's just yet another type of coverage to teach.
0: Absolutely. My quick last detail with the closeouts, going back to that quickly, was uh, you mentioned earlier about hands and Mm -hmm. where you're kind of throwing your hands, especially as maybe a no middle in the closeout. How important is that to you where every closeout, the hand pressure and kind of taking away maybe a passing lane opportunity?
2: I used to be the kind of coach that was, you know, you throw your hands up so that it stops your momentum and then it stops the shot. And what I've seen is it stands us up. So much that now what we're trying to do is, and rather than just thinking, where are your hands? Because they usually would go up and then down. That was their just go-to. So now being able to put a hand up to stop yourself, but put a hand in the face and now put a hand in the passing lane right away without movement all over the place which makes your body then be off balance right so we're really focused in on the balance on taking away a shot and taking away a passing lane in addition to keeping in front but we feel like the balance is much better than it's been in the past
1: when they close out and the player attempts to drive middle how are you teaching footwork there
3: We're teaching them to force them up towards the jump circle, the midcourt. And that's the same kind of angle we have like on our hedges. If someone's going to go towards the middle, they're going up, back away, as far away from the top of the three point line as possible. So again, it's either you're there and you're taking a charge, or if they're driving and you're forcing them that way and not dropping that high foot to allow them to get downhill.
0: With the closeout and the three point line being moved back a little bit, has it changed anything in your thought process on how? far to close out because more shooters are probably not quite as efficient a couple feet back.
2: I like that it's moved back and we have one line to share with the men and FIBA. We don't talk about it because we want them to feel the same pressure to get out and and stop a three. At the same time, once we get to that where we're contesting the three, get up, take away the three, now give a cushion. And so that's really a point of emphasis.
0: We want to move now into our segment that we call start, sub, or sit. We're going to give you three basketball topics, ask you to start one, ask you to sub one, and ask you to sit one. But we're going to do it a little bit differently since we have two of you on today and from the same staff. And you know each other, obviously, very well. Brooke playing for coach back in the day and now coaching together. We figure you know each other's ins and outs pretty well. So I know it's a, an old newlywed game where <laughs> you ask one person a question, the other one answers. We're going to try that with you both. And so what we're going to do to start is... This first one, I'm going to ask Brooke what Sue would answer on these start, (laughs) sub, sit questions. And then Sue, once Brooke's done, you can say what the right answer would or would not be. Okay. (laughs) We'll see how we do. So this is themed hard to teach. So something that's really hard to teach in the game. So Brooke, start, sub, or sit, you think Sue's answers on hard to teach, posting up, passing into the post, or passing out of the post with the start being the most difficult one?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think she would definitely start passing into the post. Okay. And then I think in terms of hard to teach, ooh, that next one's a tough one. I would say she would sub passing out of the post and then sit posting up. We love okay. teaching post-ops. So <laughs> the passing aspect is definitely one. we <laughs> okay. All the passing, in or out, wherever we're passing, that's definitely, we have not become masters of teaching that. We're still working on that.
0: Okay. Coach, <laughs> how close is she? 100. She's yeah. right on. All right.
3: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, she rarely <laughs> misses a
2: question on test, so that's didn't miss one there either. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so just a quick follow from my end, you started the uh, passing into the post. How do you all work on entering it into the post? So it's not a turnover.
3: Oh man. Oh, we've worked on it every single day this summer, this preseason, it's something that should be simple, but it's difficult. That's really the separation. I mean, you watch the WNBA, those people can pass and it's not something you really notice until you're kind of in it. And just how to be an elite player, you have to be an elite passer on something as simple as that. So we work on it every day. Basically what we want to do is first and foremost, like women, girls, we have a tendency, just put it over heads immediately, put it over heads, put it over heads. So it's just catch it, get in that triple threat right here, keep it still, see where your defender's hands are, and then, you know, make a quick ball fake to throw a strike. We talk about throwing strikes. And if you're going to move the ball, ripping it low, that's usually the defender's hands are up. So rip it low. So that also keeps it off of your head. So we work on all those things. And obviously the post player, whoever's down there has got to give a great target. That's huge. But yeah, it's something we've really tried to work on a lot because we've sure. a lot of area to improve.
1: Sue, so do you differentiate or well, do you prefer chest pass or bounce passes into the post?
2: No, I don't. I don't prefer either. I think they're both important. Yeah. I don't think a chest pass is ever going to get there. It's going to be one that maybe comes by your ear. Yeah, I think it, what's really important too is which hand are you passing with to get it to the target hand. And so I'm a stickler for a lot of left hand passing because a lot of people want to pass across their body and it's not the most efficient or effective.
0: You said that you guys work every day on posting up with your players. Sue, maybe sticking with you on that. How are you teaching post players to post and keep their angle and keep their position on a daily basis, like you mentioned?
2: Well, Brooke's done it for a long time and she's one of the best that there is in, in that. And for a one player, she had to play in the post for a long time in college. And so she learned a lot. And even through playing in the WNBA and posting up bigger guards, those types of things. I think it's so important. And we have these great kids with size, you know, six, five. It's really fun. But when they come to us from high school, they have no idea how to put stuff. Then you've got these kids that are versatile, these stretch fours, and they feel like, well, why do I have to do that? Well, you know, do you want to shoot a two foot shot or no, I really want to shoot a face up three, but I think, do you want to score or do you just want to shoot? So, right. <laughs> so, you yeah, know, that's something that over and over, I think this year we're going to be able to be a much better high low team. We have a lot more depth in the post. And so Brooks done a tremendous job of teaching them to read the defense. And then you've got to have your guards reading the defense too, to make sure that if they're playing on the high side and we're going to reverse pivot and seal them and all of those things, where does the ball go? So, We do. We work on it every day. We feel like our post game needs to be very dominant this year. And so it opens it up for your guards as well.
1: On that thread, the high low pass, what are you teaching there? Depends on again, is it
2: a duck in? Is it a reverse seal? Where's the help? Yeah. Let's say it's the seal. The reverse seal. Yeah. Yeah. So if we've gotten the help out of there, then we're going to put it high. Okay. And we're going to put towards the rim.
1: Okay. Yeah. Is there any target you're telling them just towards the rim?
3: Yeah, wouldn't you say, Brooke? Yeah, there's two. Well, and I get really specific about where is the ball. So I hate the reverse seal, like creating that space where the defender has her hand high in front. If we've got the ball at the absolute top of the key, the trail, I do not want that. That pass for us rarely gets there. If we're flashing to the high post, like to the nail, Mm -hmm. we want that pass because now we can make that. There's that space the proper spacing. So when we do have the ball at the trail, what we're working on with our posts is that you're trying to seal in such a way that reverse seal where you're building a wall with your arms. So basically, you know, if you're on the right side, if you're on the right block and you're reverse sealing, your left arm is so important. You're not just holding your defender off at the waist. Like you're trying to create like goal posts with your mm-hmm. chest completely to the opposite sideline and your defenders completely on your back. That pass, yeah. I will be okay with because the defender doesn't have her arm up over. I've battled her to get her behind me and now a pass can come anywhere and I can go get it with two hands. It's really the idea of like when we're on the post too, you know, when the ball's on the wing, it's like we want to hold somebody off that's three quartering and have our hand to the rim. Well, we can't see you. You got to get 10 times Toes towards the ball, create that. And now your hand isn't towards the rim. Like now we can see your chest a little bit and see your hand and lead you somewhere. And you still have space to go get it and you have open layup. So it's that 10 toes, chest to the ball type of idea, even in the high low situation when the ball's at the trail.
1: Okay. Okay. Makes sense. All right, Pat. What do you think? Next one. My next one. So I'm asking Sue for Brooke's answer. Sue, what do you think Brooke would say? We're gonna give you it's a horns play. And actions to run with the big who popped or the big that didn't roll. So would Brooke want the big to pin away, to run a second side action, to throw it to them for a handoff, a DHO on the second side, or to follow the point guard for a second pick and roll on the side? She likes those.
2: (laughs) I would say... It depends on the post. <laughs> it's gonna be, yeah, like that's going to be tough. Um, we like a lot of dribble handoff action better than we like the pin away. Okay. I would say she would start the dribble handoff action and then she would sub the pin away. The third one, I know whatever it was, I thought she'd sit, but I could be wrong. <laughs> All
0: right, Brooke, how'd she do?
3: She did great. I like the idea of the dribble handoff, like giving it to the pop person. I think that's what you're saying, yeah. giving it to that post that pops or short rolls, and then them going into a dribble handoff. To me, that is the action that gets the ball out of the point guard's hands or whoever's coming off that initial screen. The other two, she's got to come off. Now she's got to wait for another action, whether it's a pin down or a rescreen. To me, I start to get frustrated with our offense when our point guards have the ball in their hand too long, you know, and and we've got to wait, 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 wait for. Something to happen, wait for something to happen. I'm more in the mindset right now of like, let's get it out, let's go. But it does depend. Like, do you want, can that post player at least do a one dribble? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully they can at least do that. And that gets the ball in other people's hands and other people involved. And so I do like that for a starter. Uh, Again, getting other people involved with a pin down or some other action without the ball is great. And then finally, the rescreen, you know, you need it, it's going to happen, but I would sit that one.
1: My follow-up is with the DHO. I'm always curious how much emphasis you put on how they deliver the actual handoff. I think a lot of times we just say, go to a DHO. And then when it starts to go wrong, you realize, well, okay, we obviously need to spend some time on how we make the handoff. So what are you telling the bigs to do on the handoffs?
3: Biggest thing that we get in trouble with is when the bigs start to go uphill. You know, they're going back towards the half court line. And so we're moved back. So for the bigs, it's like if you can at least get that one dribble downhill and then create some space in a perfect world, it's like downhill towards a defender, not just towards your teammate. If you're not freaking out too much with the ball in your hand and then obviously get on balance, get to two and wait for that guard to come off of you. That's what we're telling the bigs right now.
2: We do a dribble toss. And so it's not just take it out of my hands. It's lay it out there for them at a perfect time.
0: With the dribble toss, do you want the offensive player to toss it and continue on to screen? Or you want to just toss and sort of slip out of it? Or what's the preference after the toss for the big?
3: We're finding that at least with our players, it happens really quickly. Fast. Like we're doing a guard to guard down screen right now is when we get it. So that guard is coming up pretty quick off of that down screen out of the corner area. So I want the post players to be set initially. Now, when the ball's out of their hands, the guard is usually attacking. Sometimes, though, if the defense has gone under, that guard will stop and re attack or shoot behind it, which is great when we can get that. We are telling them pretty much like you want to screen and use it kind of as a screening opportunity.
0: All right. So the next one we have, again, I'm going to ask Brooke for Sue's answer. The theme of this one is just things that teams do that are really hard to prepare for, but are not maybe part of their main offense or defense or something, but something they do maybe specifically that just gives you fits so or you have to really prepare for it. So start, sub, or sit, a team that puts great pressure on you after a timeout to get the ball in bounds, doubles, or just makes it very difficult to get the ball in. A team that's really aggressive on offensive free throw rebounding. So either Xing in or spinning off, but really tries to get the offensive rebound. Or a team that, after you make a free throw, does a great job of pushing the ball up the floor in some sort of after free throw make set into their offense. So all these little tiny things teams can do. What would Sue say is start sub or sit there, Brooke?
3: I think the first one would be the sideline out of bounds pressure. Okay. I would think she would start that one as most difficult to prepare for that. And then sub would be getting it out of the net and pushing it off a free throw, you know, that transition defense aspect. And then sit would be a team that crashes well on the free throw line.
0: Okay. How'd she do?
3: You know, anything that applies
2: immediate pressure when you're in a stopped dead position and the first two do that. So you've got to prepare your team. What do they need to do that's harder than usual? Well, I mean, yeah, if they push it hard on a free throw, then I think it's, difficult on a made free throw but it's everybody doing what they already do in a transition defense you're just supposed to do it but I do think she's right you got to start the fact that if you can't get the ball in and there's there's different things that you have to prepare for to put in and then I agree with her too that then the the sit would be just do your job you know people are gonna go try to get the rebound some don't but you better be prepared so That's the one I'd sit.
0: With the after timeout pressure on the sideline, how do you work on that in practice to try to simulate getting the ball in against pressure?
2: We've got a lot of different looks, maybe too many that we call. And so we work on those consistently, especially if we know that a team is more preparing for a team that's going to do that.
0: And I guess one more quick follow-up too was just, you know, Pat and I've talked recently about teams that that do a really good job offensively on, after a made free throw, they push it and they get right into a really quick set. Maybe it's like pistol action or something Mm -hmm. that just up the sideline, even though it is everybody's job to get back. I mean, how much do you have to talk about that? If a team does that Brooke, maybe I'll throw this to you in your scouting report. If a team's doing that, how much do you bring it up so that they're prepared?
3: The one that we've seen most in that situation is where they overload the the strong sideline, you know? Yeah. So you do have to talk about that, especially like a lot of times we like to press after a main free throw. You know, we've done a 2-2-1 two, two, press in the past a lot. And so that overload, just get it in and get it up, that really creates problems for that press. And so, you know, it is, it's talking about that there is going to be that extra person. And so that ball, biggest thing is like, can't get over our heads. That's a, you know, so we're, we're trying to be up. We're trying to be on the first and second people along the sideline, which is normal. Now that third person is coming to the corner side. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got to be there too.
0: Right. Right.
3: That ball was head in transition defense, you know, we're cooked. So that's the one we see the most. That's the one that we just, you got to get everybody back just so quickly and finding along that three point line.
0: Absolutely. I know an old trick was subbing after every made free throw to set the press or to stop a sideline
3: break. Good. <laughs> I like that one.
1: <laughs> Our last one. So again, I will be asking Sue for Brooks answer. So Sue, things that get you beat during a game. Start, sub or sit. Bad shots, bad fouls, or bad screening? Well, I think
2: she would say bad shots because that occurs more often within the course of the game so that's going to get you beat i think i mean we talk about bad fouls but i'm gonna have to say bad screening because if we can't get open looks because we just don't get bodies and we don't care we don't get great angles i'm gonna say that would be her sub and i'm gonna say yeah it's it's bad to foul but just don't be
3: stupid so (laughs) i'm
0: gonna say she'd sit that (laughs) I (laughs) broke.
3: The first one definitely bad shots. That's a given. I would say, and I think I'm just traumatized, and and so you'll know what I'm talking about. Like we've got some post players that are a little foul prone, and we got to keep them on the floor to be a good team. So I would say right now, those I'm just thinking, you know, one particular case in jet, like in particular, like those bad fouls kill us and have really hurt us. And especially I can think of several times, you know, last year that we were really at a disadvantage when a particular player was, you know, had some bad fouls. So I do think, you know, that bad screening, you know, Pat, that's a great question. Just that's everything. You can't do that, whether it's off the ball, on the ball, you're relying on some to have really, really good players that can just make plays. And, you know, that's tough in a league like the ACC, you know,
1: everybody's really good. My first follow up is regarding the bad shots. And I'm just curious how much time do you guys spend on defining shot quality or shot selection?
2: Go ahead,
3: Brooke. <laughs> 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 I know you're going to take it, Sue, because Sue is so great at defining it like you said pat like just being really specific with players on like we talked about at the beginning that role meeting when we talk to them about it it's what is a good shot for you and what is a bad shot and that's different obviously for every single person and we really use numbers we stat every practice and we use those those hard numbers just to say you know sorry you know this time in the shot clock and whether it's open or not, it's not a good shot right now. And explaining to each player why it's different for each of them. We talk about that as a group, just using numbers and being real. Then it's on the player and to back up the, you know, data driven, just explanations.
1: Within those conversations. And I guess with some of your better players, are you more lenient in allowing them to take some poorer shots to find the rhythms
2: Yeah, I think so. I think you know, Kelly does a a nice job over at Oregon with giving his kid red, yellow, and green lights within their practice time and drills and all of that. We looked at some of that and it was good to a point. I think there are kids that you have to give them that opportunity to get in the rhythm. And that's our job is to put them in a position to get them the best shot that they can get. I think bad shots are never good shots. I mean, even if they're trying to mm-hmm. get the ball out of their hands into a rhythm, so misses, yeah, to get in, but not really bad shots.
0: Well, both of you are off start subset hot seat. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Thank you for going through that with the newlywed game. Um, <laughs> good synergy here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So we've got one closing question for you both and we'll let you both have time to take it separately. But before we do, thank you both very much for making the time this morning. I know your schedules are very busy. And so thank you for carving out the time for us. We've had a blast. so Thank you.
2: No, thank you guys. You guys are busy too. So we, we appreciate it.
0: Thank you. A question for you both and Brooke, we'll start with you. And then Sue will ask the same question right after, you know, last year was an interesting year for you both with Brooke, you taking over for a season and Sue, you taking a step back for a season. And I'm interested Brooke first with you of what you learned most about last year, moving from an assistant to a head coach that you're taking with you now.
3: Well, first of all, I learned, like I said earlier, how to be a better assistant coach or what that should look like. Finally, being in those shoes. And it is, you can judge and have ideas and, <laughs> you know, speculate all you want from an assistant role. It's just not the same. And I know we hear that over and over again. I think the most valuable lesson was how I can be what an assistant coach should be, which is a support to the head coach. As an assistant, it's not about, you know, what you can teach the players. It's not about you. It's about the program. And that starts with the head coach. So being that support and knowing what that needs to feel like. And that was huge. And then also that how fun it is to be standing up and coaching a game. It was almost like I was a player again. Like you are in it. It's a lot of pressure to be a head coach for sure, but it is fun. You know, when game time comes, I mean, that clock starts and like, you're in it just like a player almost. (laughs) you're in a nicer outfit but you still sweat i mean i i, I was always like Dude. Sue. so it always kind of halftime like oh my god i'm so hot I'm, like, I'm not it's not hot out there you know and i did the same thing in halftime man i sweat like crazy because you're like playing the game it is Fun, you know, and a way that it's not as an assistant. So, those are two things that really just stood out to me um, among many, but it was a great opportunity. I'm so thankful that Sue and Florida State trusted me with the spot for a little bit.
0: Absolutely. And very well said, Brooke. And, Sue, to you now, you had an opportunity to take a step back for a year to obviously take a sabbatical and help with some family things. But, what did you learn, you know, taking a step away and now coming back?
2: I'm still learning. Honestly, I had an amazing opportunity to do that. The university giving me that opportunity to take the time away. And then, even in my re entry into the atmosphere, trying to really realize all of Brooks' value as a head coach. And how do I, I love to put coaches in a position where they are ready for the next step. And so, you know, with Brooke being so faithful to come back another year, how do I continue to put her in a position where she can even learn more and maybe sit down half the game and let her stand up and have fun and sweat the other half? <laughs> uh, but But I also... I found a, I realized a lot about the game and the way that not the game of basketball, but the the game of coaching college basketball, and how much emphasis we put on the wrong things. And we are not as much as we want to be. We're not a professional organization, and so keeping the main thing the main thing, and learning that there's a lot of things that don't have to be at the very highest quality because we don't have the same type of staffs that professional teams do. And so making it the best possible experience for our student athletes and not selling our soul to the profession to do it, making sure that there is balance. And and that was an amazing thing to have the balance. My family's in Seattle, Washington. I mean, that's corner to corner. I rarely would get there. So now just having had that time with them and knowing how much more is out there than just this little game that we play as much as we love it.
0: Absolutely. And gosh, just before we close too, well said on both parts. Brooke, I know that outside of this, you've been involved with helping moms and coaching and the profession as well. And I just wonder maybe to close here, if you had anything to say with that to kind of continue to help that going forward.
3: Yeah. Thanks for asking about it. I do. I have a organization that I co-founded with another college coach called Moms and Coaching. And really it started out as a support group for moms. There are so many mothers that coach at every level, but especially in the college game. And we just don't see that. You don't know necessarily that a woman has kids when you see her on the road or you see her on the sideline or, or a man for that matter. But that aspect of being a mother in this profession, as Sue was alluding to, this profession, college coaching can be all consuming time-wise when you're Taking care of college kid, you're taking care of other people's kids at the same time because that college age and they're away from home for the first time. Balancing that with being a mother is a lot. It's very rewarding. So we're a support group, but we're also a group that wants to let the world know that there are a lot of us doing this. We're doing it well. And it's an important, you know, part of. Coaching women to be that example that they can see that, you know, we want women to continue to coach. We want former players to stay in coaching and not feel like they have to make that choice of, uh, if they don't want to, of, man, I just can't be a good mom or I won't be a good coach if I do both. So we love it. And there's so many of us out there doing it. Adia Barnes was a great example in the final four this year, you know, Mm -hmm. at halftime. She stayed late coming out at halftime of the national championship game because she was breastfeeding. She has an infant and she had her team a shot away from winning national championship. So there's so much to be said, just as examples for women, young women, women that want to coach that you can be a family person and, you know, have kids, but stay in this great game and pour into other people through coaching as well.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with coach Sue Simral and Brooke Wyckoff. For more information on the free newsletter, slapping glass plus membership videos and much more please visit slappingglass.com have a great week coaching and we'll see you next time on slapping glass